0: I'm Justin Wright
1: and I'm Nick Pye and welcome to The Stretch Tapes. Before we start, it's worth noting that we recorded this podcast just before and during the early days of COVID-19. Whilst risk, which is the topic of this podcast, is clearly relevant to much of what's happening, we didn't probe the relationship between risk and the global pandemic. That perhaps is the subject of another podcast. We do hope that no one listening has been affected by COVID.
0: Yeah, we hope everyone's staying safe and listening to more podcasts. Or even reading more business books like me. So, before we get started, a reminder of who we are and why we're here, and not in any kind of existential crisis sort of a way. Nick and I run a business called Mangrove, which helps companies grow and stretch. We work with a range of global businesses, mid sized fast growers and startups, including five of our own. We've always been super interested in new ideas and how they can drive personal team and business growth. We even went as far as capturing our learning over the years and researching how it works in other fields beyond business like elite, sport, and the military. We flipped all of this learning into a cracking book called Stretchonomics. And of course, whilst Nick loves a business book, I get bored very quickly by that sort of thing and just want to know how to apply the theory. So in this podcast, we try to create something that keeps both the purist and the practitioner happy.
1: In these podcasts, we look at tackling challenges which are at the edges of regular marketing or customer-facing roles. Justin, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, standing in a field in Hereford, having a terrible cup of coffee in the pouring rain with a very heavy-duty Special Forces guy who was telling us all about the art of what Special Forces warfare is all about.
0: Yeah, I do remember. It was like uh, paintballing for corporates run by former soldiers who seemed to take great delight in reducing Jane from accounts to floods of tears.
1: Yeah, something like that. Well, one thing Major Delta Force, the head guy, said that I can remember when he was talking about Special Forces warfare is what they do is they bring unconventional thinking into the conventional battlefields, or conventional thinking into unconventional battlefields. And that's sort of what we're trying to do in this podcast, but with less in the way of wrap round sunglasses and conceal weapons. I guess that's a complicated way of saying what we're going to try and do is look at marketing and customer-facing organizations from some very different angles. What we don't want to do is get caught up in the echo chamber of listening to marketeers talk about what they think about marketing. Our topic today is risk, and the unconventional thinking bit comes from our guests. We've got an extreme skier and a former professional gambler. Risk is a central but much unloved topic for anyone being tasked with growth, innovation, or making any kind of step change difference. It's sort of assumed, but it's also a bit of a taboo. To paraphrase writer Stephen Pinkler, who was writing on emotion and decision making, it's a bit like sex in Victorian Britain. It's always there in the background, but never really talked about openly, and certainly not in company. Think about it. When was the last time you were sitting in an investment meeting or sharing a new idea and the concept of risk was openly mentioned? When did you see or hear everyone around the table talking about how they really felt about risk, how they had assessed the risk associated with a particular decision? And I don't mean ticking a risk register, but really thought about it, what the processes and thinking had been. Never. It, it just simply doesn't happen.
0: And yet we make choices every day and in so doing take risks. But it's something which is rarely acknowledged outside of some specific roles or industries like investment management. And as we hear from our experts, working with risk requires as much skill and rigour as any other management challenge. The ones everyone's OK we're talking about. I guess it feels more important now than it ever has done before. As we see our clients being asked to deliver more with the same or even fewer resources. The days of incremental tweaks seem to be gone. And in the words of one of our experts, increasingly we have to deal with the choice of going big or go home. It feels we need to know more about it and to talk about it more. I think it's fair to say risk is something that we've had more than our fair share of exposure to since setting up our first business 15 years ago. And Nick, I guess your hairline proves the point.
1: <laughs> it's like you're tall enough to see the top of my head.
0: Mm, that's a bit sizish. but over the years we've had to manage risk both in setting up our own companies investing our money into startups and navigating a small business through the current COVID-19 pandemic. We also, in a day job, have to consider risk when advising large corporates on innovation and multi-million dollar transformation projects, whether it's the creation investment of new products, businesses, brands, or offers, creating new supply chains or business models, or more latterly, working with teams to explore the risk of not investing in sustainability. Risk is woven into every aspect of our work. The risk of doing something and it not working, the risk of someone else getting there first, or the risk of doing nothing and missing an opportunity. We have to have a perspective whenever we make a recommendation or create a strategy or a plan.
1: And I guess we've managed to always have the risk conversation indirectly with clients by talking about their ambition and the resource trade-off against it. Are they really prepared to do the things they'll need to do in order to get to where they want to go?
0: Yeah, and I guess the best teams we've worked with managed to align what they want to achieve, their ambition or target, and what they're prepared to do to get there, the resource, investment and behaviours they are prepared to put behind it. When these things are clear and balanced, companies or teams are in what we call the stretch zone. Risk and reward are balanced and everyone has had the conversation, albeit without having to overtly use the R word. And in these teams that are stretching, there's always some tension and discomfort because by definition, they're no longer in the comfort zone. And we've also seen how those who avoid risk tend to stagnate in the business sense. Nick, do you remember Mary Baskin? I think she was a brand writer from a few years back. She used to talk about brands being like sharks. If they don't move forwards, they die. And we think the same is true in a metaphorical sense of businesses, teams, and individuals. But I think it's fair to say we're not experts in risk. So to get some other views and different perspectives for this podcast, we spoke to a couple of people who see things a little differently from us. And in some areas, differently from each other.
1: Firstly, we spoke to Casper Berry, who we've known for a while. He's an ex-professional gambler, decision-making and risk expert turned motivational speaker. He spent nearly 20 years studying how we make decisions and evaluate and understand risk. I guess he's sort of a risk technician. He uses economic theory and his poker playing experience to bring analysis and rigor to risk. He's got a very big brain and spends probably more time than is perhaps natural thinking about this stuff. But we also spoke to extreme skier Rachel Findler. Now, I'm a big ski fan, so apologies if I was a bit giggly when speaking to her. She's meddled at World Freeride Championships and has been a sponsored athlete for a range of super cool brands, including Faction, uh, which I have to declare a vested interest in. Uh, but if you love skiing, you should get a pair of their wonderful skis. Latterly, she set up Thrive, which provides guiding and mountain training in some pretty remote parts of the world. When we spoke to her, she was just back from taking some younger pro athletes out into the wilds of the Chilean mountains. In her life as a skier, she's constantly assessing risk, with life and limb being at stake. But as with many mountain lovers, she brings a different kind of rigor and language into assessing risk. So in essence, we have both a pragmatist and a purist.
0: Let's start with some definitions. I think risk in many businesses is seen as a bad thing and something which should be managed out of any process or any idea. The reality is this usually kills the idea in any chance of growth. Status quo and risk are seen as opposites, which is plainly a nonsense. The issue is that for most legal enterprises, there's usually a pretty straight line between risk and reward. If we are to grow or achieve anything, we have to take some risks. First up, we'll hear from Casper, who gives us a technical definition of risk. He highlights both the ups and the downs, and the fact we're taking risks every day. He talks about the interaction between our conscious and subconscious in making these decisions.
1: As we'll hear, it's slightly different for Rachel, who unbelievably, for an extreme skier, claims to be relatively risk averse. She pulls apart created risk, the risk that is in our heads, and real risk, the risk which is real and in the situation. I found this super helpful. It's a really simple and powerful way of pulling apart the emotions of risk and the maths of risk. In calling out and tuning out the creative risk, she talks about how she can give all her focus to the job at hand, which I guess is a good thing if you're swinging on a rope above a thousand meter drop. I think this language would be an amazing thing to hear our clients use more regularly. Despite the very different contexts and backgrounds, there are a couple of things which connects them. They're both very good at talking openly and accepting that risk has a massive impact on outcomes. The second is that they both have a way of taking the emotion and the noise
2: out of the situation where risk is involved. I think one of the problems with the word risk taking is as soon as you say it, people think about jumping out of an airplane or setting up a business or it, 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 it's always perceived as betting the farm. And my interest is that it can be something as simple as raising your right hand in a meeting. And sometimes that's one of the scariest things that people can do. Um, but maybe one of the most significant risks that an individual can take during the course of a day or a week or a month. So for me, risk-taking should be seen as as uh, the whole gamut from the simplest and most micro to the most macro. And the, most of the time, the most macro is not relevant, not, certainly not what I'm talking about, and not part of the day-to-day tapestry of, of people's lives. But what does it mean? It means to make a decision where there is a higher upside and a lower downside than the alternative. That's what a risk is. So you can do the, the alternative would tend to be the status quo, um, the comfort zone, as it's sometimes known, the thing that we do already, and the risk is a little bit more uncertain with higher variance, higher volatility, greater upside and greater downside. The framework that I use for decision-making is essentially quite a standard framework. I mean, you know, I'm a former professional poker player, but I studied economics at Cambridge. I am not trying to reinvent the wheel, really. One of the things that I take some time trying to convince my clients of is that I'm I'm just a I'm just an evangelist for or a conduit for you know quite a bog standard underlying science, the science of decision making, which is what a poker player has to get to grips with on page five of any decent poker book, right? So that's that's good. That 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 was my inroad into it. But it was um, essentially what you're trying to do is a calculation, and it is fraught with difficulty in the real world because the real world is not like poker or the toss of a coin, okay? But like all training like all improvement what you're trying to do is bring the subconscious processes into the conscious mind rigorously look at them they'll pass back into the subconscious uh, or they'll become you know subliminal in terms of your daily processes but hopefully 5% better and that is essentially thinking about upsides downsides and probabilities you know I was just doing a, a session yesterday in which this guy said you know that 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 feels like a lot of a lot of faff and I said yeah yeah it, it, it does but you do it all the time you do it every day. I said, if I present to you a business and you go, well, I don't, I don't know if it's really for me, and I say, Richard Branson's interested, what's happened in that moment is your perception of the likelihood of the upside has just increased. You have this probability machine on board, play deal or no deal, right? Remove the £250,000 box. Your box hasn't changed, but your perception of its value has changed because you are always making decisions in a world of uncertainty. And because you are doing that, again subconsciously every single day now he goes oh okay yeah i say, 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 say now it i go it might be illegal it's illegal in malta what's happened now is your perception of the likelihood of an extreme downside has just suddenly snapped into being or increased from 0.01% to to 10% you almost certainly can't put a number on it although i would go try and get into the habit of trying to do so because then you can challenge that number you're doing it all the time. So it's dead simple. It's just upsides, downsides, and probabilities. If you, if professional poker players these days, kids from Stanford with PhDs in statistics, they're doing that to 64 different outcomes. What if I raise and he raises? What if I raise and he calls? What if I raise and he folds? And the more that you can do that and apply, I am going want to say accurate, but I mean good judgment, probabilities, assessments to each one, the better your decision-making is going to get.
3: My view is that everyone has a very different level of risk, and that's from everybody of, you know, my next door neighbor to myself and other extreme sport athletes. And even within the extreme sports industry, we all have different levels of risk. And I would say that my level of risk is at the lower end in, in, in terms of the extreme sports industry. I'm definitely the one who, if the avalanche danger is slightly high, I'm the first to say I'm not going out or I'm going to turn around and go home. But I know other people that have a higher level of risk and have no problem going out skiing on an avalanche danger of four out of five. But the way I would make that decision is basically risk versus reward. And to me there's no glory in getting caught in an avalanche <laughs> there's no um you know you might get some views on youtube if you survive it but you know that's not really the way to go about it but if some things i do people say oh my god you're crazy i can't believe you go do that like go um ascend a mountain to ski a couloir you know a three thousand vertical meter couloir that we have to rappel into and during the rappel, you're you know, 2,000 meters of cliff below you. People say to me, oh my God, you're crazy to do that. But to me, that doesn't really enter my risk zone. The reason why it doesn't enter my risk zone is because I go towards like real risk and created risk. So real risk is the chances of an avalanche, chances of a rock fall, chances that a storm is going to come in and trap us. Those are real risks that we have to look at to assess. But created risks are something that I've created in my head. It's a story that I've created in my head and made myself believe that something's dangerous when it's not. So, for example, funnily enough, I don't like heights. (laughs) But So anytime I go to like rappel or abseil and I'm hanging over a 2,000 meter cliff, you know, my fear of heights slightly kicks in. But that's a created fear. It's a created risk. The risk doesn't really exist. I'm strapped into the side of the mountain with two ropes. So even if one rope goes, the other one's there to still catch me. The chances of having an incident while rappelling are extremely slim. I'm more likely to get injured during skiing than I am rappelling. And so I just have to remind myself that this fear of heights is created. It's completely in my head. And then it enables me to just get on with the repelling. And I always think of people that are scared of spiders. You know, I have no problem with spiders. I happily will go grab them and pick them up. But someone won't even go in the house if there's a big spider by the front door, whereas I'll go and grab it and chuck it in the garden. So that's how I always try to overcome those risks. I think a lot of it comes to mental strength. It's very easy to allow our bodies or our mind to get into a panic state sometimes. So focusing on the real risks actually keeps me quite calm while I'm out there. And I think the real risks are where you're focused. You need your focus on the real risks. Because if I'm out there and, okay, we know a storm is coming in 24 hours. Okay, that that gives us a whole day window. But actually, as we're hiking up the mountain, I can see the clouds are coming in faster, the winds picking up, um, which I've experienced this in Chile before, the storms can come in within an hour. And to take your focus off the real risks then puts you at risk. So it actually mentally really helps me personally to focus and put all my mindset on the real risks and constantly assess them. And if I get caught up in the created risks, well, I'm just gonna ignore the obvious signs that are in front of me and get myself in a stupid mental panic about things that actually don't really matter.
0: So if that helps us understand the nature of risk, the upside and downside, the resource element, the next key ingredients are context and the idea of risk tolerance. Here, context is everything. In the past, we've asked clients to rate their openness to risk in the context of making a decision in a large organization versus making decisions in their personal lives. The tool we use is loosely based on the Myers-Briggs model, so it has a degree of validity to it. The answers are usually wildly different for over half the people in any room we do it with. It always throws up some surprises both ways. The quiet ones who do naked parachuting at the weekend or the flashy ones who keep the cash under the bed. Risks are always contextual. And who we are at work is not necessarily all of who we are in life. In quite contrasting styles, we hear some similar things from both our guests. We hear Casper talk about his views on personal risk versus financial or reputational risk. He unpacks this in the language of economic theory talking about S-shaped utility curves and diminishing marginal returns. Rachel speaks in more pragmatic terms, explaining the mantra of why go big or go home works for her.
2: There's a huge range of risks, quote-unquote, that people can take. And very often you'll find... there is. No, I don't think there's any such thing as a, as a, as a risky, uh, risk-tolerant mentality. So I, for example, am very risk-tolerant when it comes to reputation, hugely. Money, quite some but incredibly risk-averse when it comes to my physical safety, for example. I don't know if you've seen the the film Free Solo with Alex Honnold. I mean, can you imagine... (sighs) Doing that. For me, that is absolute insanity. But I would love to have sit down and have a conversation with someone who's got a new business idea and quite fancies an investment of 10,000 quid. Do you know what I mean? Wouldn't wouldn't think twice about it if I thought that was a you know a viable opportunity. So what else? So there's physical endangerment, there's money, there's status reputation, there's your comfort, your degree of status and power in the world. All of these things are at risk basically when we talk about risk we're talking about the endangerment of scarce or limited resources usually that we have spent some time building up so at the most extreme there is life because it can't be reclaimed like most of the rest of them can be in some form but you know we don't want to lose any of the other resources that are there and that are ours because we get less pleasure from our gains than we get pain from our losses that's a, a basic part of most of our psychologies most of the time. Attitudes to risk definitely change over time in different circumstances. So let's take an example. Let's let's take an entrepreneur. People think, oh, an entrepreneur, they're a very very risky, risk-tolerant kind of person. But just think, when an entrepreneur makes a decision, right, if it goes well, they're going to get all the upside of that decision. Okay, and if it goes badly, they're probably part of a community of people. Certainly, poker players are. Where hey, you just borrow more money to get back in the game. It's often said as a cliche, but let's just put it out there. You know, in America, you're not considered to be a complete entrepreneur until you've had your first failure. Do you know what I mean? Because that's when you've learned, and you, you know, you're more complete. And there's there's probably some argument to that in terms of you it develops resilience. Whereas if you work in an organization, oh, these people are very risk averse, aren't they? Well, if they make a good investment decision, they're not going to get any of the upside. Probably someone else is going to take all the credit. And if it goes badly you know, they get the P45, or they certainly think that they're going to. And yet we perceive one person as having a different mentality from the other. They could be completely the same. The second aspect is almost, if not genetic, then certainly evolutionarily. There's something called the S-shaped utility curve, which is just a model. Like all models, it's wrong, but it's how does it help you? But broadly speaking... We start off at the bottom of our S-shaped utility curve in terms of uh, a lifetime. That is, we, appre- we experience appreciating marginal utility. That is, we, you know, we, we we get lots of upside, and that is what encourages us to try lots of things when we're young, which is absolutely right. We're exploring the world. You get to a point in your S-shaped utility curve where you become very risk-averse because you're at the top of your diminishing marginal utility curve. There's a huge fall off if you lose what you've got. That's what I talk about when we that's what we talk about when we talk about fear of failure. And we get to that point, you know, in our sort of 30s, 40s, 50s. Now, again, part of that is that's good because it's going to keep us alive. But part of it is... It's a product of our lives. We've, we've got a lot of stuff at that point, you know, with the person working in the organisation. In fact, Gus O'Donnell used to talk about, and it has different names in different organisations and different nomenclature, but a layer of permafrost in the civil service. That is, the young Turks were very keen to try new things and the old greyheads were, you know, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it's okay. And you can draw where they are on their diminishing marginal utility curve right at the top, you know, where there's a, a slight incline up and down. And then you've got this layer of people. It's not because people born in 1960 are genetically different or inherently risk averse, it's because they're in a place in their life where they've probably got two kids in private school and, you know, a nice big Volvo in the drive. There's a lot to lose.
3: I started my business uh, at the beginning of last winter. And uh, with my business, I very much have a like, fuck it, let's do it attitude. <laughs> I guess let's just throw everything at it. But on that side, I don't have anything to lose. I'm not going to lose a big amount of money. I'm not putting a house on the line. I don't have children there's nothing to lose. So my risk with that is quite high. Um, But again, that's risk versus reward. There's not much to lose. And in that return, like with the business, I like working with the other athletes because they have a similar attitude to me. Like, yeah, go big or go home.
1: It's interesting to think about that S-shaped curve in the context of how and why startups fail. There's been some work looking at the optimal age of successful founders in the U.S. And do you know what that age is, Justin? Uh,
0: How the hell would I know that?
1: Fair enough. Well, it's 45 years old, and I've always wondered why. It was one of those stats that came with no context. It was all data and no insight. But listening to Casper, I wondered maybe it's the right age or position on that curve. There's plenty to play for, but there's also plenty to lose. You've got enough experience to be helpful, but not enough to be put off. I also wonder whether the role of failure might be important. Casper in particular talks about failure. In poker, you need to lose hands to win hands. Short-term failure is really the only route to long-term success. And yet in business, failure is something we're often scared of and scared of even talking about, particularly in large corporations. It feels like in Rachel's language that that's in part that created risk. And there's probably something cultural in there too. I wonder whether as buttoned-up, emotionally retarded, face-saving Northern Europeans, we worry about that more than most. As an aside, it's often talked about as a reason why there are more tech unicorns in the US than Europe. In Europe, the investment scene, it's said to be driven more by numbers than the business model. Is it proven? Does it work now? In the US, there's more interest in talent and therefore failures. Can this team make it work? If not, do they have the skills and learning to create something that will? In Europe, it feels like we do have a more binary mindset. It's success or failure, and it skips out that learning phase. I certainly think about the startups we've created, and the most valuable by far for me was Albion Racing Club, our booze brand. The numbers didn't stack up in the end. We lacked the resource to fulfill our ambition. But in creating funding, launching that brand, I certainly learned more than almost any other two-year stint in my career. It was like a liquid MBA times 100. It wasn't a commercial success, but I also wouldn't deem it a failure. And it's definitely a risk I'd take again.
0: Nick, let me bring you back from the distillery. Uh, Casper talks about risk being about the endangerment of a limited resource, which we've spent time building up. I think that's a great concept. It's interesting to think how in big companies, the resource at risk is often talked about as money, but it's also reputation. Unlike with entrepreneurs and startups in the corporate environment, the negative impact of damaging your reputation far outweighs the potential upsides. A few grand more in bonus if you're lucky, if you go out on a limb to back a controversial or risky innovation or a particularly differentiated creative idea. Or the downside is a reputation left in tatters when your gut feel lets you down, or somebody else in the organisation cocks up your maverick idea. I mean, why would you bother? Why would you raise your head above the parapet when you're so likely to get it blown off? I mean, surely it's better in the corporate world just to follow the crowd, to be a sheep rather than the purple cow.
1: Ah, the purple cow from Seth Godin's book. I thought you didn't read business books.
0: No, I read the back cover. That was enough. (laughs) Anyway, if you're not prepared to speak your mind and risk your reputation, then why are you even there in the team in the first place? But also, if organizations are not prepared to protect individuals from the downsides of reputational risk, then you'll never create a great innovation culture.
1: For once, I couldn't agree more. I know that businesses like Amazon uh, and Google are very good at protecting their people against reputational risk. At Amazon, anyone with a big idea is encouraged to submit it in a standard format for review by a team of peers in innovation. If it makes it through to get funding, great. If it doesn't, no matter. There's only upside. There's no downside. Let's hear a little bit more about Casper talking about risking money and reputation.
2: It's very hard to get organisations to change because the things that brought them to where they are at the moment are a product of a very long time doing a specific thing. Which, as we know, is a kind of a habit and a behaviour that's ingrained, and that makes a lot of sense. That is a product of, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of common sense solutions to the daily problems of running an organisation, and one of those things that it's an answer to is the fact that it's almost certainly owned by people, be the shareholders or you know, one owner investor, who may who may you know be be uh, quite entrepreneurial in and of themselves, but who also have a normal human psychology, which is they don't want to lose money. I worked once with an organization and their CEO used to say, and he was an incredibly bright guy, actually very entrepreneurial guy, but he used to say, you can do anything you want. You can do anything you want, guys. Just don't lose me status or money. (laughs) It's like, okay, well, that is necessary in the short term. In order to get more of that in the long term, you have to be prepared to invest to stake that in the short term. So your question was, how do you? change organisations. And I think the first step of that is making them aware of the things that they're doing that are creating risk aversion. One of my points that I make now in my speeches more than I used to is to try and show people the extent to which they are taking risk every day, right? Because money left under the mattress doesn't get any return. So organisations are a product of the risks that people have taken. And usually... You'll find, you know, those stories that they tell, the narratives are about the origins, myths are about founders who were incredibly entrepreneurial and risk taking. HP. I worked with an organization once, which is a multi billion dollar organization, and they just talk about how risk averse everyone is. And it's just like, well, you're not because you created this high street brand and that high street brand. And you wouldn't be where you are now today if you were as risk averse as you're talking about. Are you more risk averse than you used to be? Yes. Are there things that we can do about that? But the example I always give is meetings, right? How many people have been to a meeting in the last two weeks that hasn't achieved everything you wanted it to? Now, that is what we can call a fa- a short term, a small failure, right? But you're not going to stop taking meetings. So meetings, in their very essence, are allocations of time, scarce resource, that are calculated risks. Get better at meetings, start saying no to more meetings, do whatever you want to do, but you're going to continue to take calculated risks with your time in the form of meetings. That's the smallest unit, if you like.
1: That allocation of time is simultaneously the most valuable asset most businesses have and the least well measured and managed or budgeted. You know, there's a story that Michael Bloomberg, when he was mayor of New York City, had a clock put in every meeting room. Attendees had to punch in their pay grade and it would calculate the cost of that meeting to the people of New York City. Even if it's nonsense, I love that thought. We all waste so much time in meetings. In duller meetings, I sometimes try and estimate how much it's costing and trade that off against the relative value to the business. I sort of know that if I find myself doing that calculation, perhaps I shouldn't be in the meeting and maybe the meeting shouldn't be happening at all.
0: Yeah, true enough. I think that startups are much better with their time and risk, actually. Time's often the only resource they have, and as a result, they spend it much more wisely. The risk of doing nothing is the biggest risk of all when you're starting up. That idea of investment is something Casper explores in the next set of clips. He talks about failure, but raises some questions about how we define and see failure. He asks whether one is viewing success in the short term or the long term. The relationship between short-term loss, which might lead to a long-term gain, it's often a conversation which can't be had, because loss of any kind can be seen as unacceptable. And yet, as Casper points out, this is ridiculous. And perhaps as a result, it describes why so many large companies struggle with innovation at scale.
2: Probably the area in which I most differ from a classic motivational speaker, and we all hate that term anyway, but uh, is that I think fear of failure is a good thing. And, and here's why. I'm I'm asked to speak at meetings and AGMs and this sort of conferences, and they're all there to talk about success, right? We all want success. Think about it. Break down that term, fear of failure, aversion to failure, hatred of failure, intolerance of failure. That's your best friend. That's what's going to drive you towards success. It's because we don't want to fail. It's because that's ingrained in our psyche. The distinction that I was lucky enough to come from the world of, let's call it gambling, but it's not really, uh, poker, is to understand the difference between the short term and the long term. In the short term, you can win money at roulette. In the long term, you're going to lose at roulette. In the short term, you can lose a hand of poker. In the long term, if you're doing it right, you're going to make money playing poker, right? So there's an inherent difference between these two. It's like molecules of water are H2O, but water is wet and clear and runny. They're totally different things. And the human being is a unique species because... Estimates vary, but let's say about 1.8 million years ago, we started to develop this unique thing in the animal kingdom, which is our long term goals. We started to think in the frontal, near frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex about our future. Right? We started to create long term goals. We started to wonder what it would look like if we paint on the wall of a cave or play the piano. We started to want better lives for our children. And what happened at that point is a schism that still lives with us today, which is a disconnect between our the period of time of our goals, which is now longer than getting home and procreating and getting up the next morning, and the period of time of our fear of failure, which is short-term. What if I pick up the phone and I ask this person, they say no. That short-term fear of failure will stop you achieving your long-term goals, which is to hit your Q2 targets. And therefore, if you embrace your fear of failure, your hatred of failure, over the course of the long term, over the same time period as your goal, you're now working in harmony with yourself. And if I may take an anti-religious point of view here, we are uh, a species that, like all species, are just mid-evolution. We're not complete. We sometimes like to think that we are. And I sometimes think that in two million years, we'll look back at this species that, with its climate crisis and its pension crisis and all its short-term thinking and we'll wonder you know, how the hell it ever functioned Because it is the root cause of so many of our problems. The risk of doing nothing, I think, is a stab at something which I hope I've perfected, (laughs) which is what you're doing in that moment when you talk about the risk of doing nothing, right, is you're projecting yourself into the long term. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Every decision that you make, we talked about the risk being the comparison between this comfort zone status quo version or this more volatile, more extreme upside and downside. Okay. And therefore, when you think about the risk between doing A or B, A is always more attractive because it involves less potential for failure or less consequence of failure, right? And so that's how we usually phrase most of our decisions. In fact, even more extremely, we think of the framing of not uh, safe versus risky, but actually doing something risky versus nothing at all. Okay. As soon as we take a long-term view of that, we start to perceive our life if we never take that risk. And that was, in many ways, my first sort of foray into this world. And so I've I've distilled it into this. The question is now, the way that you rewire people in terms of making decisions and getting them to be more uh, risk understanding is to change the question from what if I do this thing versus that thing to what if I do this thing versus never do this thing. So it's do or don't versus do or never. And as soon as you say that word never do, you immediately rush 5, 10, 15, 30 years forward into your life and ask for the long-term consequences of not. And that is the greatest motivating factor of all. Because of a very simple and quite interesting aspect to this, which is that, again, it's it's our risk aversion that motivates us to take risk. Human beings will take the least risky option, and if the least risky option is to do the thing now because it's more risky never not to, then we'll do the thing now.
1: Whilst our experts agree broadly on the definition and the nature of risk, given their backgrounds, there are some differences. Casper was at pains to talk about portfolio and risk. And this is a really key concept for big businesses, because unlike most startups, big companies have multiple bets on at any one time. They can afford to lose some. This portfolio thinking is a central concept, particularly when, as described by Casper, there is the potential for the multiplier effects of scale. If something's working, then a business can invest and scale it. And if not, it can afford to take the loss. Startups often only really have one bet and one chance, which perhaps makes the idea of being an entrepreneur sound a bit less appealing. It seems odd that those in large companies spend so much time, therefore, fetishizing startups when actually they've got more of the kit to succeed. And yet somehow, sometimes that portfolio mentality can lead to doing too many things and
2: none of them particularly well. The problem with diversifying as a, concept generally is that you're never going to get all the upside because by definition you have hedged that was the purpose of diversification in 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 a way but i'm not sure that's true with business because whereas if we do that in poker if we do that on the toss of a coin would you rather bet 100 pounds on the toss of one coin or 10 pounds on the toss of 10 coins to a 10 to 1 each time right the point is with business once you get the winning coin toss you can then scale that and you can replicate that So it's asymmetric in that sense. So I'm a fan for two reasons of the many small bets. A, because what I've just said there, and B, because it's more likely to get people to do that. The day that my work went went mainstream, I've been talking about this nonsense for 15 years, right? It's in 2004. And until 2008... I've always said this, since until 2008, I was regarded as an oddity, right? Like people might go, he's a good speaker, but but broadly speaking, why are we sitting here talking about uncertainty? What happened in 2008 was the financial crisis made people realise that uncertainty was the new normal, and therefore we had to get to grips with this thing, and now everyone's talking about VUCA, right? And the day that I realised that it went mainstream was Jim Collins wrote a book called Great By Choice, which is subtitled Uncertainty, Chaos, Luck, and How to Thrive Despite Them All, and... Um, it was also quite a depressing day for me because he basically used one of my examples, which is which is this, but he uses a really good phrase for it, right? Which is, you shoot bullets and then you shoot cannonballs, or that the size of the thing that you shoot to see where the target is should be proportionate to the, who, the size of you. So if you're Google, you can shoot atomic weapons, that's fine, you can mine asteroids. And the reason why I think it's important is because we should be trying to make risk-taking feel less daunting. That's why I talk about the right hand in the air, all right, is because otherwise when you say the word risk-taking, people will immediately think about the one big thing and that immediately feels daunting and therefore they are less likely to do it.
3: In a group dynamic, risk is very different. I think as a skier, I find this generally in the outdoor sports, you choose who you go out with and that's just trial and error, You know, meeting friends, going out skiing with some people that you've just met. And I met some complete cowboys out in the backcountry. I mean, just no regard for safety or, you know, a level of risk. Um, But I only go out with them once and I won't go out with them again. That's that's it. I'm not willing to do that. So it's a case of finding people that have the same level of risk. And actually, I think in a group dynamic, people might disagree with me, but I actually think you're better off in a group of people who have a similar risk level to you. Because otherwise, it can really divide the group. If you're out in the backcountry skiing, for example, and you have someone who's really willing to take the risks and someone who's not willing at all, um, you end up having this complete divide in the group and it just ends up creating tension. And you can essentially split the group. Half of the people turn around to go home, the other half go out. Well, now you've reduced the numbers so if something goes wrong, there's less people there to help in the situation if something does go wrong for the guys that have made that decision to go out. So I think really you need to find people that have the same level of risk as you. And then even within that group, you're still going to have a difference of risk takers. But I think you get to know each other and vocalize very openly from the beginning what risks you're willing to take, which is what we do. Um, We always sit down at the beginning of of an adventure, discuss our route, discuss the other options that we can go on, and we discuss where we're gonna stop to reassess. So if we have to essentially hike up three different ridges to get to the peak we want to, we're going to stop at the top of every ridge and discuss as a group how we feel. And I have to say that who the, the lowest level of risk is going to win. If the lowest level of risk person wants to go home, we're all going to go home. And, and I've never had anyone fall out over that. I've never heard any arguments. I've never hold, heard anyone hold grudges because of that. Um, That's the decision that was made. We all got home safely, and
0: that was the priority. Interesting stuff. Even as a non-skier, there are a couple of skiing-related thoughts from Rachel, which I really liked. The first was the idea of risk in a social setting. In most businesses, decisions get made in a team environment. We hear that in B2B, the average number of decision-makers making that decision has risen from 5.4 to 6.8 people. So if nearly seven people on average make a decision, then the team dynamic is critical. In skiing, from what Rachel says, this is down to the lowest common denominator, the person who's prepared to say no first. And I think the same happens in business. The big difference from what she's saying is they have much better and more explicit conversations about why and how they see the risk, with a focus on the real and not the created. And reading between the lines, it works because there's trust in the group. I guess what Google call emotional or psychological safety. It feels like this lowest common denominator is less based on personal reputation or politics.
1: The final thought is with Rachel again and focuses on the role of gut feel. In a world of data, it's perhaps not a particularly fashionable concept. It's something we touched on our EQ podcast. For her, gut feel, however, is less emotional and more about experience, subconsciously looking at a situation and making connections to past experiences. The way she talks about it, it's a subtle form of using experience as data in a decision. I think we often see experience as a negative when associated with risk. Once bitten, twice shy, all that sort of stuff. We tried it before and it didn't work. You seldom hear we tried it before and learned X, Y and Z. It sounds like when you're wanting to take the right risk, walking away is okay if you're using experience in the right way.
3: Gut feeling trumps every time, no matter what. That is the one thing that is a non-negotiable. If anyone has a bad feeling, we go home. It's not even discussed or anything. But that gut feeling is so strong because I think especially with athletes, they're so in tune with their body that their gut feeling is maybe more prevalent than than in another person. And so I think if someone, and we have all had experiences in the mountain where we have ignored that gut feeling and something bad has happened. And every single person will say, "Oh, I knew it! I knew I should have gone home. I knew we should have. I knew I shouldn't have done that run." So now the gut feeling is is always there, um, and knowing when to turn around. To be honest, my experience with with the backcountry adventures is the gut feeling is there at the beginning of the day. Um, if there's a bad gut feeling, it's there as soon as you pull up in the car park, and it stays with you all day. So it rarely will come halfway through the day. But if it does, there's um a ski movie oh gosh I think it's called finding the line and it's Nat and Anna Siegel and they're climbing one of the faces in Chamonix and she says I've got a bad feeling and no questions asked everyone said okay we go home
0: interesting I wish our clients encouraged their people to use their gut feel more surely all the experience of their people is a competitive advantage I mean why not trust that more than the group of consumers in a focus group
1: Because the assessment of risk is wrong. It's deemed to be more risky to trust gut feel in a corporate environment, whereas Rachel trusts hers more than anything else.
0: True enough. So after all that, where do we end up? Well, reflecting on our conversations, it feels like risk is an important topic for marketeers, innovators, probably anyone making investment decisions. It's the big conversation we never have with colleagues. And I think these two give us some helpful language and some concepts to think about. Right, I've written down some notes, Nick. Shall I tell you what I think the key takeouts are?
1: It doesn't feel like there's going to be a lot stopping you.
0: Nope. So, look, here's what I think. Firstly, risk is both up and down. Risk is every day and all the time. And time is a resource, one perhaps we could do a great deal more with if we consider it limited and where it might get the best returns. I also think that uh, we learn how risk is contextual, both to an individual and to a situation. Risk is both created and real and putting those two things apart is really important. What drives our assessment of risk in many cases is our sense of potential loss more than gain. We tend to worry more about losing the results we've invested in, whether it be in the form of time, money, reputation, emotion, whatever. And with this, we need to think about failure. And as Casper says, the importance of short-term failure to get to long-term success. And clearly it's an area where rigor is really important. Ignoring it is not an option like the Victorians and sex, we need to talk about it, not hide it away. And finally, we should perhaps listen to our gut feel once in a while.
1: Well, I've got nothing further to add. You've stolen all the clever things to say. So with that, it's a massive thanks to Rachel and to Casper for their time and thoughts. We hope you enjoyed it. Please do get in contact and let us know if there are topics or people we should be speaking to, or how and where we might improve things.